Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for market intel, forecasts, and strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Bull. Thank you for being with us. This show today is brought to you by my company, Bull Realty. For customized asset and occupancy solutions, visit bullrealty.com. You're also invited to reach out to me personally. My email is an easy one. It's Michael at BullRealty.com. Well, today we're going to talk about banks, the, the lending world, right? Uh, you know, in commercial real estate. We rely a lot on banks, right, for financing for everything, for our tenants and for a lot of our properties. But what's really going on with banks, right? We're seeing a lot of doom and gloom headlines. Uh, we obviously do have some issues, but what's the real story? Please welcome my guest is Chris Marinak, the Director of Research with Janie Montgomery Scott. Chris, good to see you, sir. Good to see you, Michael. Thank you for having me. Well, good. And tell us about this Wall Street Journal article that uh, says that we're in a doom loop and that the world's coming to an end here for banks. Well, it was an unpleasant day. I believe it was Wednesday, uh, a couple days after Labor Day in mm -hmm. early September, and the Wall Street Journal continued to kind of press on. Uh, articles about the level of problems in the um, real estate uh, in the U.S. Uh, marketplace, the kind of uh, overall uh, big numbers coming in 24 and 25 on loans renewing in this kind of maturity wall that many uh, viewers have heard about. And just they coined the phrase doom loop. That was going to be a conti continual problem within uh, banking and really within all of real estate lending that these loans were going to come to and be a problem and all these problems were going to ensue. And I really was um, taken back by it. And the more I thought about it, it, it was another example of misinformation in the marketplace because, well, yes, there are, you know, four and a half, five trillion dollars of real estate loans out there between banks and uh, particularly non-bank lenders in the U.S., a lot of that is going to take several years to come due, and a lot of that is not all going to be a problem at the same time. And as we'll talk about, I think the concept is that there's a cliff event in real estate when in reality it tends to be a very slow bleed that goes on. Absolutely there are problems in real estate. Absolutely, there are issues that will get worse. I do think it's like the weather. We will see the temperature drop. We'll see snow accumulate. It's going to be several feet in certain circumstances, like office real estate. But not every loan is a bad loan. And I also think that to some extent, this is going to take a while to fully recognize. What really is unique, and I've been an analyst covering banks for 31 years, because if I go back to the early 90s and the post uh, sort of Northeast crisis with real estate, certainly the recession of the great financial crisis that we saw 2008, 9, 10, 11, the recognition of problems were very real then, but the disclosure of companies was not. When folks talk about extend and pretend, I get that. I lived it. I saw all the pretending. And I saw a lot of banks being a little bit less untruthful about their portfolio. Fast forward to 2023. Banks have the regulators and the SEC all over them to where they have to disclose, they have to put more information. Analysts and investors have required these companies to put reams of information out. We have way better intelligence than we did in 2008 and 9 when companies really could hide. Today, banks can't hide. And even private lenders 
can't hide either because they have investors that they're answering to. There's just a way more information that's out there. That's where I get frustrated that the Wall Street Journal creates headlines such as doom loop to sell articles and newspapers and subscriptions when the real data is much different than that. And we're seeing banks as recently as uh, 9.30 with the last 10Q filings put real information out about office real estate, about total real estate, and the amount of problems that they've admitted to is actually pretty high. And as we can get into, you know, Bank of America has 27% of their office real estate as criticized, as non-pass rated. That number's 21% at truest. That's a real number. Those companies are admitting to sins. And yes, there'll be more sins that will come out in their confession over the next couple of years, but they've done a lot already in the past six, nine months to admit the problems they have. And this goes further down the food chain to all types of real estate. You know, the problems at Bank America and Truist in terms of what they've admitted with criticized real estate is already nine to 11%. And those numbers will climb but they've already been reserving and taking write-offs on problems already. So I feel like the, the, it's easy to call doom loop and extend and pretend, but the real data suggests that banks are admitting to sins and starting to really deal with issues. And I don't want to give them too much credit because it is only late 23. I think there's another two or three years of this process, but I think the process is way, way further along than, than uh, investors and particularly the Wall Street Journal has admitted to. And so I think when people worry with the proper data, they're going to come away with a different impression. And again, I think it's totally fine to be worried and concerned and expect more problems in the next two years, but I also think that it's also solvable as well. One of my points that we've made, and we did a report a few weeks ago, we called it the PP&R pillow. PP&R is an acronym for pre-tax, pre-provision, net revenue. It's the central feature of the Fed stress test that they've been doing since 2015 or 16. And the whole concept is, what is your operating cash flow before taxes and before provision ex expense? And what can you do with that? So we look at the world in banking, and we use Bloomberg data for 2024 estimates as of December and say, what's the expectation for cash flow in 24? What's the contractual common stock and preferred stock dividends these companies have? And then what's left over? So in the case of Bank of America, it's $25 billion with a B in calendar 24 of PPNR residual after all dividends that's left over. The same number at Truist is $4.7 billion of PPNR after all dividends. That's real cash flow that they can use to invest back into their loan losses if they need to. So when we put that into application and say, well, how many loans can go bad at Truist or at Bank America? They can recognize a bunch of issues today, reserve for them today, and write them off and move on down the road. And I think that the industry has really done a disservice by what the journal and many other publications have said because they're all repeating the same data about how many loans are outstanding. We haven't really got to the bottom line, which is how many loans go bad and what's the loss on those loans. That's the old-fashioned bank examiner mm -hmm. frequency and severity. And one of the fun things that we did this year is we took the Fed stress test late June 23, and we just did the algebra, which anybody can do. The Fed publishes the dollars of losses 
and it publishes the number of loans on all these big national companies, national lenders. When you do the algebra, you come up with about 20% of frequency of problems in CRE, all CRE, and you come up with about 45% of losses. That's the loss given default for the industry using a very adverse scenario that the Fed has penciled, where unemployment rates jump to 10%, stock market falls 40%, real estate prices fall 40%, really ugly scenarios that are probably a little unrealistic, but let's just say it's going to happen. If we're going to see 20% loans go bad and 45% of those loans are written off, we got this because the PPNR, the cash flow exists to handle this. And we can take the same examples on Bank America and Truist and go on down the food chain, whether it is Ameris Bank, it is Pinnacle Bank, it is Bank of California and California, Banner Bank, M&T, pick a bank, put this on a foreign bank. You can do the same math for anything. You can solve your problems in the banking industry. And that's using existing cash flow today. That's not tapping reserves already built that's not using capital that's in place. And a lot of investors have thrown stones, put stones against banks this year saying, ah, oh, the banks have got unrealized security losses, they got other problems and they're hiding. That's all false. Interest rates have crested. We're starting to see the beginning pushback of the unrealized security losses beginning to go away. And even though it may take a couple more years for those unrealized losses to go away, they're all government securities. Those government securities are going to pay back. Um, and even the CMBS pools that are out there, those are largely AAA rated that the banks hold. And even if some of those do go awry during this process, the banks don't have big exposures in those. Most of what the banks own in terms of securities tend to be Fannie, Freddie, and Treasury uh, issues. And the government is not defaulted, nor do I think they will. So these are all issues that are workable as we work forward. And more importantly, is the cash flow banks have can solve the real estate problems. And, and I think it leads us down a much more positive path when you think about the bank's ability to pull the fire extinguisher and start to put out fires than it is this perpetual doom loop that feels like it's going to be Armageddon when I just don't think that's true at all. And it um, unfortunately has led to a lot more negativity in the financial world than it should, should, should yeah. have occurred. And we need confidence, right, in the banking industry. Absolutely. Banking is a confidence business. Mm -hmm. The fractional banking system is built on having that confidence. Mm -hmm. We saw a few examples this year where Silicon Valley lost 20% of their deposits in a matter of hours, and that bank had to close the next day. Very unfortunate. I doubt it's going to happen again because other banks in the system don't have the concentration of those deposits that Silicon Valley had. And I think we're going to learn some real lessons about deposit concentration that, to me, have already been solved because the, you know, the two or three big players have already been taken out. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, criticized loans, um, and you gave the example of, of uh, Bank of America and Truist. So what is... What does that really mean? Sure. So back in the day uh, of the great financial crisis, as well as back to the 90s and 80s, you know, go back to the Texas days of, of problems uh, in, with the oil business, banks had non-performing loans mm -hmm. and the no amount of non-performing loans spiked. Mm -hmm. What has changed over the last 40 years is that the recognition of problems begins with a rating system of one to nine that banks have employed. 
one to four is a pass rated loan and anything five or worse is criticized. So you go to a watch list, then special mention, then substandard, then doubtful, and eventually of loss. Those are the categories as you as you degrade the portfolio. Well, in the banking system, banks have always internally had pass versus non-pass. It just became more formalized with the great financial crisis in the FDIC call reports. Those call reports now have transfer the data to the SEC, which makes the banks publish it. And the banks who are public, like Bank America Truist and all these other examples I'm making, they put it out there every quarter. It's not once a year, it's every 90 days. We know what the banks have in commercial real estate. It is very well disclosed. And we have seen those portfolios deteriorate, particularly in calendar 2023. And I think the numbers in a lot of cases are 10, 11% problematic in terms of non-pass rated mm-hmm. in real estate today. Those will get worse. Mm-hmm. They'll cumulatively probably go to 20 or 30% over time, but over time really is 2025, 2026. Mm-hmm. It's not gonna happen all at once. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I think what'll happen is that banks are gonna start charging things off with the reserves that they already began to set aside and then lather, rinse, repeat, continue to do that process. No different than if you lived in New York City or Buffalo, New York or Boston. When it snows, you shovel and you do it again and do it again and maybe you're done for the day and the next Saturday you have another round of -hmm. snow. That's what happens, Mm -hmm. but you deal with it. And you have the ability with your shovels and your and your cranes and other ways of dealing with problems, salt, sand, et cetera, you handle the problem. Mm-hmm. And you learn to deal with it and cope with it just like all those cities do during those winter months. Yeah. And you look forward to the summer months when it's sunny and 80 degrees again. And it will happen. And even if it's gonna take us three years to work through commercial real estate issues, we have this. Yeah. And you know, I think the system has a lot less leverage than it used to. We have just better discipline than we did 15 years ago, and I don't want to give too much credit to real estate developers and to banks, but I think we just, we've just we all learned lessons, and so we do things differently. We're not lending 100 cents on the dollar like we were in 2005 and six, whether it's real estate for residential construction or whether it's multifamily or whether it's office. We don't do that today. Right. Today you lend on 65 cents on the dollar, in a lot of cases it's 60. I have a lot of banks I cover who are big national well-heeled stocks that have a 57 to 60% LTV and they disclose that. And so sure, people don't trust appraisals today. They think appraisals are all bunk. That's okay. We can take an appraisal of 57% and say, well, it's really 87%. That's fine. Mm-hmm. We'll take losses on that mm-hmm. and the banks will write them off and move on because they have cash flow and they have equity and they have reserves and they have the ability to create more of that as we move into the future. Um, banks have, I think, a very defendable defendable position that is way stronger than they had in 2008 and nine when you had the last financial crisis. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, that's where the misreporting by the Wall Street Journal and other media outlets has just been unfortunate because they're gonna prove to have a lot of egg on their face of being too gloomy and too doomy And I think when you focus on the real data, you come away with a cautious attitude and a thoughtful attitude, but also one that says, hey, we we can survive. You know, and that's how I think you work through any type of crisis. And I think this is gonna be more of a process 
then it really is a crisis. I think it's just more of a, we have turbulence, we're gonna fly the plane through it, there is no mountain that we're gonna hit, we're gonna land this, mm -hmm. this uh, jet and keep on moving to the next set of passengers and the next flight and keep moving. That's the attitude that I think the banking system has, and I think also the non-bank lenders are going to have as well. You know, we can talk about private credit; it's exploding. Private credit is going to be probably even more data-rich the next two or three years as they defend themselves because they too want to get more dollars in the in the tank, get more investors investing with them, get more fees. It's all how you create the income stream for the operators of those funds. Yeah. What uh, information did the Wall Street Journal uh, use and what, what should be used? What should they really look at? So they use the TREP data, which is a service that talks about uh, lending. Um, and I think what is not defined well enough is what is in the banking system and what is not in the banking system. We think there's an awful lot of loans outside of banking um, that are going to have to be dealt with separate from what the banking system has. But honestly, I'm not sure that's as much of the point. I think that everybody's going to have issues. And there are a lot of interconnectivity between the regulated world and the non-regulated world. I think it's more about context. It's more about, okay, so maybe there are $5 trillion of real estate loans outstanding. And sure, maybe there's 20% that's going to be rolling over in 2024 and 2025. That doesn't mean that there are twenty percent problem because not all those loans are bad loans. Right. There are actually a fair number of borrowers who are just trying to figure out what their demand is, what their needs are, and it's changing. But for someone who is giving up space, there's someone else who's expanding. Mm -hmm. There are other folks who are looking at buildings and saying, "Well, maybe we have to repurpose this. It might be awfully expensive, but we're going to consider what we need to do." I find there's a lot of buying power in the marketplace from new players, mm -hmm. you know, family offices, other private funds that are out there, folks with cash who want to buy. When they know that a hotel is 40% off, they're bidding. Mm -hmm. And there are many cases where you thought that you were going to see losses greater than they were. You know, a good example that we should talk about is, is Capital One. Mm -hmm. Capital One in August announced $900 million of office loans in the Mid-Atlantic that they sold to Fortress. And Fortress had another uh, few of outside players who came in with them on a club deal. Mm -hmm. The real numbers for that have been now disclosed by Capital One in their SEC filings as of late October. Mm -hmm. They end up writing off about 35% on those $900 million. Mm -hmm. You would have thought that that was going to be a 60% loss or a 55% loss because everybody just assumed that they had those 50 plus percent losses because it was office. And don't you know, office is terrible. Just read the Wall Street Journal. It's got the doom loop. Yeah. But the problem with assuming when you break it up and spell it is that you actually have to have the real data. And a lot of those loans at Capital One were just not as problematic as you would think. It was mid-Atlantic real estate. It was the real estate in Atlanta or Florida on a couple buildings. And sure, it was not worth par, but it also wasn't worth 50, 50 cents off. Right. And also Capital One is, is able to finance it, which again, some people criticize them for financing, but why not? Mm -hmm. If they can finance a deal, make it better for themselves, what's wrong with that? And so that's how there's a workout solution for a lot of these companies. Mm -hmm. You know, we've seen before, and I know you've participated in some of these A and B notes over the years. You know, that was the game plan created from the RTC days in the early 90s. 
that playbook still still works. Mm -hmm. And companies will be doing that. We may brand them differently than what uh, RTC and SAMDA and some of those programs did 30 years ago, but, but we'll get the same uh, accomplishment, which is to recognize losses. That would be your, your hope note, and you have to write some off and hope you get it back. And then you restructure the A piece and keep the borrower alive. Mm -hmm. What is happening right now is a big discovery of how many people are actually going to work with the banks or work with the private lenders mm -hmm. and who's going to throw keys. And you know, I've seen a you know national healthcare company mm -hmm. throw keys back on an office property in New York City mm -hmm. in this September. And that bank that I cover is publicly traded, and it took a 50% write-off on that deal. Mm -hmm. It's probably going to be a little less of a loss at the end of the day in the 40s, but they took the loss all up front. Mm -hmm. That company just had a bad hair day. Mm -hmm. They made less money, but they were still profitable. Their book value went up less, but it mm -hmm. still went up, and they lived to fight another day. And that was their biggest issue. And they dealt with it and they moved on. And that bank will most likely have other problems the next couple of years, but they'll handle it in the same way, which is they use current earnings, they address the issue, and you move on down the road. And that's the fundamental difference today in 2023 into 24 that is way better and frankly more acceptable than we saw in 2008 and 2009, which was very debilitating for the industry. Um, so I think banks have been much more assertive at recognizing issues, which is why I mentioned Bank America and Truist, because those are you know healthy lenders with big exposures in, in office in terms of real dollars. Uh, and they have cash flow to handle the issues. And they've already recognized a fair amount of those problems. Yeah. Um, so to me, the first uh, solution is to admit you have a problem mm -hmm. and then you deal with it. And I think banks have done a lot more of that than investors and certainly the media has really um, signed on to. Yeah, well, that makes sense. And, uh, and I, in the Great Recession, I, I saw the same things. We do a lot of workout work and distress work here, helping borrowers and lenders. And uh, yeah, it was the banks back in that time were kind of, oh, we don't have a problem, we don't have a problem. And then finally, they, yes, we do have a problem. Yep. <laughs> I spoke at a bank event and uh, I was in one room speaking on increasing recoveries for non-performing notes and REO. And there was another guy speaking uh, at the event, something to do with employees, bank employees. And I saw him later and he, and he said, how many people do you have in, in, your, in your room? I said, well, it was packed. I mean, it was, there was stand, people were standing. How many did you have in your room? He said, like five people. <laughs> like, well, see, they had already admitted it then. They're like, That's all right. right, we have a problem. Let's deal with it. So we have, so we have these banks. They have the cash flow. They have the reserves. So that's good. We need confidence in the banking. We have a lot less leverage, right, as you mentioned, than right. we had back in that day. Right. Um, and also we have lenders and banks that are more in tune to it. They know more of how to handle this, right? That's right, exactly. And they're working through these loans. And 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 to that point, we're not seeing as many foreclosures as that I think everyone had kind of expected. That's right. Because these banks want to work it out, right? That's right, exactly. Yeah. And I think that what used to come across as a foreclosed property in Oreo, other real estate owned, is actually coming through in these criticized loans. Mm -hmm. That's why the SEC disclosures are so important. 
you know, and if I could be king for a day, I would have the FDIC put more information out about these marked loans or loans that are criticized. The FDIC gets that from the banks. It is just redacted. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that will, they, will, they will reform that disclosure, but the public banks are all putting it out. Yeah. And so it's, rec- it, it's, it's now k- table stakes if you are in the banking business, even if you're a private bank that may be large, you have to do that. If you're USAA or um, MidFirst Bank in Oklahoma, a good example where they're privately owned, but they're still an FDIC chartered bank, they have to put that information out to their investors. Yeah. Give us uh, the example um, of the other New York bank that has the multifamily. Sure. So New York York Community, ticker NYCB, um, we have covered the company for many years. It has a very big history of being a multifamily lender. They did participate with the FDIC to buy Signature Bank earlier this year. That was a game changer for the company. They also did an acquisition of Flagstar Bank in late 2020. Two, I think that's right, 22. Um, And they're a company that's on the move. They have about $5 billion of rent-controlled multifamily, and that is out of about 45 total multifamily, a billion. Um, The rent control piece is much smaller, and specifically, they've got about $700 million in 2024 that's rolling over. That's the real pressure point for that company. So let's just say that of that 700 million that's rolling over in 2024, that half of it's problematic, which is a ridiculously high number, but let's just say for a case. $350 million is backed up by almost a billion dollars of cash flow that NYCB has free and clear of their dividends. Dividends uncommon, dividends unpreferred. That's a real number. So again, it's a bad hair day for NYCB if all those multifamily rent control loans roll over and go bad next year. They'll handle it. Yeah. I would argue that they've already started to address it with reserves that they've built in the second quarter, in the third quarter, using some of the proceeds they had from the FDIC transaction with Signature, which is been really smooth and they've retained more customers than people thought, but that has just created earnings for them that can give cover for future problems. Mm -hmm. Again, it's a solvable problem. I think folks are very open to throwing stones at banks. Mm -hmm. They're not open to doing the real work to actually see how much is problematic. When they do that real work, they come away with less problems, less issues, certainly no failures. And that's the problem. It's easier to create a bear case because it sounds very intelligent. When you actually uncover it and do the real work, it's not as ugly as the bears would tell you. And I see that in the New York community example. I see that in the truest example. Um, Certainly a lot of midsize and smaller banks have been left for dead in the marketplace, now trading at deep discounts to tangible book, and they have the same story. Mm -hmm. Their issues are all solvable. And so what's starting to happen now is interest rates seem to have peaked. We have had a meaningful change the last 30, 60 days in interest rates. We'll see if it holds. It's going to be back and forth, in my opinion, next year on rates. But we do have at least some sign that the worst is behind us. The Fed may be pausing, and and we haven't solved inflation, but we certainly have seen the Fed react in a tremendous way, and now they're going to take a breather. It's an election year next year. I think the Fed wants to steer clear of tightening in an election year. At least that's my thought. Um, But it's creating a different window. Mm -hmm. I think most banks can now do 
real estate transactions, even though the market rate might be 850, they can do them at 650 and 6% if they have to. Because if they have a willing borrower who they want to keep alive, that's the better solution. Right. And I know investors complain. They call it extending and pretending. I call it just good business. Right. Why flush a borrower if you don't have to? Right. You know, we're built on real estate and we're built on borrowers and getting people to pay back. If it takes longer, so be it. Mm-hmm. I think we learned the lessons in past crisis, uh, the late 80s um, in, in Texas, the late 90s in the Northeast, certainly the great financial crisis. Mm-hmm. A couple bumps and bruises with recessions like 2001 that were tamer. Every time you go through this, keeping borrowers alive is the better solution to limiting the bank losses. Mm-hmm. Even the FDIC and the Fed, who want to talk tough, they like banks creating solutions that limit losses. It's good for business. The other point that I would make for listeners is that the banking business has become way better at asking for deposits, mm-hmm. and banks are requiring deposits. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things that has happened this year is there are banks who are now creating loan contracts that say you have to have so many deposits with us to get this loan. Mm-hmm. If you go below a threshold, we're going to contractually increase your loan rate. I have a bank that I cover that is a national player now, and they have a 300 basis point increase of the interest rate contractual if you go below the threshold on deposits. That's a real hook in that customer to keep the funds with them. Every bank, or excuse me, every borrower has a certain amount of operating um, uh, deposits that they keep. It's payroll, it's their business, it may also be their personal business that they have because it gets all blended together with small businesses. Mm-hmm. They have cash, mm-hmm. they can deposit it with the bank. Mm-hmm. Sure, they may like to keep it at Schwab or Merrill Lynch, but they can keep it at the bank. Right. And that's what is happening is the banks are forcing the customers to keep deposits with them. Yeah. And I think that discipline is only going to get greater because every bank that I talk to, and we cover 140 public companies in our practice, and I personally cover 30 or more. We ask the companies directly, do you do this? Mm-hmm. And the answer is yes, and we're doing more of it in terms of these contracts mm-hmm. that will have a deposit threshold. And that's just a behavior change. And you know, banks may still make silly mistakes we still have what I call kind of knucklehead customers who either throw keys or sometimes will have fraud. That is part of the business. Mm-hmm. However, banks are getting better at detecting it. They're mm-hmm. getting better at solving it. And they're getting better at sort of making it easier for them to keep those deposits. Mm-hmm. So it's just a behavior change that's occurred. And, and again, I don't see that coming across on the Wall Street Journal article mm-hmm. or anyone else in the media. And I think it has to get championed. And so, you know, we take that all upon ourselves to try to explain how the real world works and continue to repeat it and have our other colleagues in the industry kind of do the same. And so that's kind of our our mission, our vocation. Yeah. Uh, but we think it's it's worthy of our time because uh, mm-hmm. ultimately it's it's kind of where you solve problems and kind of work through the process. Yeah. And that's it's good to see the banks uh, kind of working through with their borrowers. And uh, we, we sell REO, OREOs, the banks call it, right, uh, for banks. And, and the ones that we've done so far uh, were bad borrowers. They, they were just bad borrowers. They, sure. you know, I think one may have had some fraud involved and uh, the other just was a terrible operator, yep. right? And so they yep. realized, look, we can't work with this, with these guys and we have to take it back. 
talking about if it bleeds, it leads, right? The, the, the press, you know, that, that's what they do, right? And one of the things they're reporting is uh, bankruptcies are up, right? Sure. Tell us about that. So the bankruptcy data is fascinating. If mm-hmm. you look at the headlines this week, you're going to see that there's a 141% increase in Chapter 11 bankruptcies, November of 23 versus November of 22. Sounds really bad, right? right. And WeWork had the bankruptcy filing, and that led to a lot of this uh, um, change in the month of November. Mm-hmm. The reality is 2022 was the low watermark. It was the historical low for bankruptcies, whether mm-hmm. it's Chapter 11 or its bankruptcies in general. And 90 plus percent of all bankruptcies are personal bankruptcies. Mm-hmm. When you look specifically at Chapter 11, we're 94% of the 2019 level. So we've come back to normal mm-hmm. pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. The total bankruptcies with the individuals, it's only 58% mm-hmm. of the 2019 level. So we're still in the process of normalizing. That's the impact of all the government stimulus checks and the ERC funds, et cetera. That'll continue to work its way through the system. We'll normalize personal bankruptcies, mm-hmm. unfortunately, in 2024 and 25. However, the amount of problems still pales in comparison with what we saw in 2009, 2010. Total bankruptcies this year are on track to only be about 24, 25% of the 2009 and 10 levels. Mm-hmm. And the, the um, chapter 11 bankruptcies are maybe 33 to 35% of those 2009 levels. So a little worse, but still, we have to triple chapter 11 bankruptcies to go back to the great financial crisis. And never say never, maybe it happens, but it's gonna take a while for it to occur. And again, I think the headlines get skewed off of the large, the, the number. The, mm-hmm. the real change in bankruptcies are in that 15 to 20% change mm-hmm. off of the low numbers when you mm-hmm. look at the whole total. Um, I think it's going to end up becoming you know, 8 to 10, 8 to 12 in terms of year-over-year deterioration. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be a lot slower in the, the pace, but it's still going to have a problem. And of course, it's unfortunate for any business or any individual who has to file bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Those issues are out there. We always have them. It's just part of the business cycle. It's also just part of business. Yeah. Not every business succeeds. And mm-hmm. so as you go through and use the tax code to, you know, um, solve your own personal problems or your business's problems. It's just part of what banks do. Mm-hmm. Banks make write-offs all the time. You know, banks are in the business of lending money and collecting as much as they can, but they don't collect 100%. Mm-hmm. And what we're trying to advocate for investors is expect a certain amount of losses, the cash flow exists to handle it, and the banks can still make money and move on down the road. Yeah. And that's generally what we have. So again, I, I, my mantra is to worry with the proper data of course, I worry about bankruptcies getting worse next year. I think it will happen. I think it's a more of a slower evolution and not this big knee-jerk reaction. But yeah. if you were on Twitter, you would have a different attitude because you hear 141% Chapter 11 mm-hmm. higher uh, numbers in, in November. Like, sure, that's correct. But technically, you need to look at a longer graph than just year over year. Yeah, and that makes sense. And during the great financial recession, uh, that I don't think it was that great, but uh, uh, there was a lot of bank failures, um, and there wasn't as much uh, liquidity around. We have kind of a different story here now. 
Absolutely. I mean, liquidity from the government, how we got here from COVID has really been a game changer. Liquidity from the Fed and some of the programs done this year. And honestly, liquidity has been good. I mean, you know, even if we didn't have the Fed programs in 23, you still have excellent liquidity from the home loan banking system, which is still a fantastic way of getting funds in the banking system. And most banks are borrowing less than they ever have. And again, the media doesn't do a great job of talking about that. It talks about big numbers that the banking system has outstanding of borrowings, but it also forgets that assets have grown a lot from 2009 and 10 to today. You know, the banking system has grown every single year. So we've got, you know, roughly $30 trillion in the U.S. banking system. And folks forget that that's had 20, 25% expansion of the last 15 years. So you're working with bigger numbers and you have to sort of you know right size that statistical base um, and so that's a key part of it we see a lot of liquidity because banks have changed behavior they're borrowing six and seven percent of their balance sheet not 18 to 20 like they have before they've got a better mix of deposits than they have before so all that plays into liquidity i also think the fed is going to strong arm banks into using their discount window more that's also a lesson learned from the past couple years um, perhaps the banks should have put more money with the fed instead of buying treasury securities that's an accounting issue but it also is a behavior change we may see in, in uh, future cycles yeah and it's also you compare the great financial recession to today um, with loan, commercial real estate loan problems, there's also more liquidity uh, from the buyers and in, investors out there, right? right. So, That's like right. Uh, you talk about, you know, banks trying to work through with borrowers. One of the things that we're seeing is uh, banks doing short sales, right? So yep. there's not a full closure. You don't have all those costs, and so these uh, criticized loans, uh, even if they're they can't make their debt payment. Uh, this is not going to be. Sometimes these losses aren't going to be that big. They have lower right. leverage, right? That's we right. just we did a short sale. Uh, actually, finalized it yesterday, where the bank said, "Hey, if you put it on the market, we won't foreclose. Uh, we'll give you a break, interest only, until you do." Um, and we put it on the market for the owner or the borrower. And we got par for the bank. I didn't think we would, but we yep. did, right? Yep. With a real yep. nice marketing process. So these yep. losses might not be as big as, as maybe the headlines suggest. That's exactly right. Yeah. I also think there's going to be a fair amount of loans that are sold, just like you're talking about. These mm -hmm. short sales are mm -hmm. going to be active mm -hmm. at the end of December 23, the end of March 24. I think there's a fair amount of activity. Mm -hmm. Banks are wide open to do those. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of individual funds, personal money, as well as individual um, funds that are looking to buy those properties. Their yeah. mandate is to put money to work. Most of the funds only get a limited amount of, of fees if the money's sitting in cash. Mm -hmm. When it's deployed, they get a bigger fee. Mm -hmm. So just follow the behavior. If you follow the money, you'll follow the behavior, and there's people buying loans. So the banks want to solve problems and get rid of stuff. There's a kitchen sink event that happens every year end, and it's right now. And so there's a fair amount happening. Mm -hmm. I think it's an extremely busy December of 23 for mm -hmm. this very reason, but I also think it's healthy. Yeah. Um, the irony of this is that most of the big banks are writing off 30 or 40 basis points in terms of annualized net charge-offs this quarter. They used to write off 100 to 150 basis points back during 2009 and 10 when it was really ugly. Mm -hmm. And most of those big banks are going to see those loss rates become 40 or 50 basis points in 2024, which is just a walk in the park compared. It's worse than it was in 23. That's true, mm -hmm. but it's just nowhere near what we saw 
um, you know, 15 years ago. And again, I think it's all about taking action because I think the issue is frequency and severity. We have to recognize problems, then we take losses, and the losses may come in reserve building now and charge-offs later, but you still recognize it today. The issue is to deal with things. The banking industry is incredibly proactive. Mm -hmm. And I think between what we see in the next two quarters, this quarter and next quarter, as well as the next two years, uh, folks are going to be pretty impressed with what goes through the industry. And I think we're going to wake up and realize that the idea of a doom loop uh, is completely false, was way mischaracterized. And it's more of a bad snowstorm. Mm -hmm. And sure, it may be two feet of snow, mm -hmm. but we got this. Yeah. We have the shovels and the sand and the salt. We'll deal with it. And um, it, the world's more sophisticated. And I think things happen faster. And that's also part of the therapy process that's going on in, in banking and, and frankly, in, in all of real estate, even if it's in the non-regulated world. Yeah. What do you expect, um, Chris, for banks moving forward in, into 2024, let's say, for, for actually doing CRE loans. It seems like a really good time to do really safe loans. Uh, maybe the properties that are a little bit lower basis, less comp competing lenders, sure. right? Maybe a better debt coverage ratio. Are banks going to be doing more loans in 24? If they have deposits, they'll do the loans. Yeah. Um, I have a bank that I've known for years who has a really good policy of only doing loans based on the new deposits they generate. So if they can deposit, generate $100 million of loans in a given month, they'll put $100 million of new loans out of new deposits and new loans. They, they match those together. Mm -hmm. That's their personal discipline. I think that's going to be adopted by many more companies, both mm -hmm. public and private banks. Mm -hmm. The reality is the FDSC and the Fed are in the middle of changing some capital rules because of the failures of Silicon Valley, First Republic, and Signature. Unfortunately, we have to finish that process. It'll probably be April or May of next year before the new rule on capital is adopted. Mm -hmm. However, that will happen. Mm -hmm. It might be a little less onerous than people fear, mm -hmm. but once it's clear, we'll move on down the road. It's kind of like the NFL. We changed the field goal from 20 yards to 33 in terms of the extra point field goal. Once people know what the deal is, then, okay, we'll do more two-point conversions. We'll mm -hmm. change behaviors based on what the new rule is. Right. I think the same thing is going to happen on capital. Mm -hmm. Capital rules will be tougher, mm -hmm. and banks are being very careful right now on new loans because of that uncertainty, but it's only going to be a few more months of uncertainty. Um, and again, I think it goes back to the doom loop idea that banks are never going to lend not do anything, which is really completely false. I think it goes back to this deposit behavior where if you're willing to park deposits with a bank, they're willing to lend money to you. And that's where having a bank relationship is so critical. For viewers out there who are small businesses, they really have to have a bank relationship. Yeah. If they don't, they need to create one. PPP was a really good thing because it forced borrowers to have a relationship with a bank or to renew their relationship with the bank. We're left with that legacy now, two years later, that's very healthy. A lot of banks have better relationships with their small business borrowers because of PPP. And sure, PPP has paid off, forgiven, we've moved on to the next acronym, but the relationship is better. That's where problems are solved, and that's where ultimately I think there's a better solution out there. It still, inquire, it still requires pain, has losses, has recognition of problems, no one's denying that, but it's also fixing the problem that's out there. And that's what gets lost, I think, in some of the press and Twitter headlines. Yeah, well, that's interesting. So um, you 
feel that uh, lenders may be a little more cautious doing new loans now, but maybe after the first quarter, after this new new um, regulation comes out, they'll be I do. moving forward. I do. They'll know where the goalpost is. I do. I think if you look at uh, expectations for loans in 2024, the Bloomberg data would suggest that loan growth is somewhere between one and a half and two and a half percent. For the biggest banks in the country, it's one percent or less. So certainly it's near zero and that irks folks. But there's a lot of midsize and smaller banks who are still lending and they're generally going to have two percent, three percent loan growth next year. They want to do business. Yeah. And a lot of it is they recognize that there are some big banks who are pulling back and they're going to pick up the slack. Yeah, and pick and up the customers. Absolutely. It happens every cycle. And yeah. I've now done this for three decades going yeah. on for it's going to happen again and again. It's just part of the process. But the good thing is companies want to make money. Individuals want to make money. The CEO only makes money if the bank makes money. Yeah. And so that's all part of the process of, of uh, having this these solutions uh, occur. Yeah. And when you're getting a loan approved and the bank says, hey, put your money over here. They really love uh, owner occupants, right? Buying real estate. And, um, and and we just had one yesterday. They got a really good loan quote and the quote said, yeah, move, move all your banking to us. Exactly. <laughs> right. So they're picking exactly. up customers. And it certainly seems like a great time for banks and other lenders to really do some some safe loans and build some some great relationships. I agree. And I think within the FDIC, the discipline is there to make a reserve on those new loans when you come in, to create new banking relationships. In a lot of cases, those banking relationships are coming over with some interest rate, but not necessarily the Fed funds rate. So the bank can still make a spread on those deposits. It all works. And again, I think it's all part of a discipline that is just better and stronger and more tangible than what you would see in some of the headlines. Yeah. Great. Chris, good information. Thank you for joining us, sir. Good to see you, man. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for joining us around the country. Hey, please share this show. Let's get it out there. It's uh, great information. Uh, we don't want a doom loop <laughs> negative scenario out there. It's not all that bad. We're going to be okay. Work through it. If I can help with anything, reach out to me. And until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh and join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bullet Realty. For commercial brokerage sales and leasing in the Southeast U.S., contact our show host by email at michael at bullrealty.com. By Commercial Agent Success Strategies, 21 incredible one-hour agent training videos. Learn more at commercialagentsuccess.com. And by Lumet. For senior housing, health care, and multifamily financing, visit lumet.com. For more podcasts and videos, subscribe and visit CREshow.com.